When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Work Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you. Season 13, episode 17. We make a lot of these, Jeff. Uh, on the show this week, you have spoken to Adrian Brown, who is the producer, director of the Test Documentary Season 2 that went on Amazon this week. That'll be in the second half of the show. We'll be talking about the Women's Under-19 World Cup, Mancad City there in South Africa, Australia's women playing Pakistan. India have named a squad of 17 for the first two Border Gavaska tests with some interesting names popping up there. Virat Kohli can't stop making tons. We'll have some nerd pledge. We'll have some other chat along the way. Mm. Hello, Jeff. Take me down to Mancad City where the grass is green, but you still have to keep some part of your bat or body <laughs> on that grass behind the line at the non-striker's end. Uh, yes, been enjoying just how predictable the discourse is now. It's just the same conversation around and around and around. And um, I think even I'm tired of having it by this point. It, it was fun for a couple of years, but by now, oh, God, there's the clip. There's the Stuart Broad comment. There's all the salty replies. Around we go. Um, yeah, maybe it's enough. We'll get there in a sec. I have a couple of things to add, as, as ever. I, I put my head above the proverbial parapet yesterday by tweeting about it, which obviously ruined my Silly. afternoon online at least. Yep. Had a lovely afternoon aside from that. with Oh, with, uh, with Peggy Amelia Collins. I think we said last week that the middle name was TBC. We thought it might be Peggy Antonio Collins. And <laughs> I, I'm not saying that the reason we've named her Peggy Amelia relates directly to the Peggy Antonio discourse to get to that term again. But the fact mm-hmm. that Peggy's mum, one of her middle names was Amelia. I think that's a nice callback to our discussion mm-hmm. last week. Yes, as in Peggy Antonio's mum, as in the 1930s leg spinner. Um, her her mother had several middle names, one of which was Amelia. And your Peggy's mother's middle name is not Amelia because no. that would be a bit odd if she gave her daughter the same <laughs> middle name. But I, was, I mean, some people do, you know, Boutros, Boutros, Gali yes. style. Um, you know, why not? The name's so nice, they named it twice. Uh, but I think it's nice. I think it's nice to have it's, – it's, it's plausibly the reason, even if it's not actually – People can believe that it is, and and they've got reason to believe that. That's right, with both names, both names, like Gareth, Gareth Evans. Uh, we're not <laughs> going to be talking about Afghanistan today. We were going to, but we've sort of landed on uh, the view that we should do this as a standalone episode. I think it's a significant enough topic. I know that Australia pulling out of that series may not feel like a huge talking point in the grander sweep of things, but it's an entry point to a, a longer conversation that we've been wanting to have since first doing this a year ago. Well, it, it's at least that if we're going to talk about it, we want to talk about it properly and not, you know, spend five minutes going, oh, well, they did this, so oh, that's interesting, oh, here's a point of view, here's a different point of view, blah, 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 and then just bugger off and, and not do it properly. So if we're going to talk about it, we might as well talk about it in some depth. So we're, we're working on how to do that. Bear with us and we'll see how that turns out. Yeah, hopefully 
between now and whenever story time hits over the weekend, we'll have a chance to have that, that conversation when we line up the right guests and, and that kind of thing. So the Women's Under-19 World Cup has started over the weekend uh, in South Africa. Australia losing to Bangladesh. That's the first, I guess, upset of the tournament. But mm-hmm. you would think that the disparity between the senior women's sides, Australia, practically unbeatable, and Bangladesh, who, who are, you know, they make the global tournaments, but only just, and they don't do especially well at those. They, they've never really won a huge game at a global tournament. They, they did win the Asia Cup back in 2018 over Cup, India. Yeah. That's the one exception. But generally speaking, they have been easy beats when they've gone to World Cups. But yeah, their, their under-19 side have, um, have done it at the first time of asking against the, the raging hot favourites, Australia. And I suppose there's no reason to have raging hot favourites for a tournament where there's no kind of form line. But yeah, it, it made for an interesting start. It's the assumption model. Um, and I suppose it shows one thing, which is that at an earlier stage of development, there is a greater level of equality. Um, it reinforces the idea that everybody starts out equal, at least. Um, and then the resources available to them make the disparities where, you know, if you, by the time you've got professional players who've been paid to train for the last seven, eight years, they're going to be a lot better than just about anybody else going around except on a very rare occasion when an anomaly takes place. So in a way, this is refreshing. It, it shows you that there's no, there's no natural order of these things. There's no reason that a team from Bangladesh shouldn't be able to beat Australia and, uh, and, and it increases the argument to resource women's cricket properly in countries where it needs better resourcing. Yeah, it's kind of that. Most um, of them. <laughs> no, that, that's right. And, and this is the, I mean, it's that, uh, what you call it, the Gladwellian view about uh, um, mm-hmm. dedicated practice. The Australian players get to build up their bank of dedicated practice at a far younger age, relatively speaking, compared to other nations due to the infrastructure that's there. But yeah, this is just kind of before that. It's before they're getting their state deals and before they're, for the most part, playing in the Big Bash and other opportunities that'll, that'll come around the world. Where there was a, a result that might have been predictable was England thumping Zimbabwe to the point where Zimbabwe were all out for just 25 and this you know generated the, the usual kind of um, conversation and despair around Zimbabwean cricket but yeah you know, Hypercourse who follows this as closely as anybody in the world made a great point that the results in this tournament aren't the main thing of course it matters who wins the World Cup and it's the first time it's been held it was going to be held in 2021 they they waited a couple of extra years due to the pandemic but the reason this tournament is being held is to develop nations across the world that's why 16 of them are playing and it's not a tournament of eight they want to give other countries the chance to advance and progress at a quicker rate than they have before so an under 19 standing world cup more a tours more opportunities to play in domestic t20 competitions it's all part of that because one of our great laments and indeed we went into this last week is that sometimes it can feel a little bit inevitable women's tournament international cricket there's australia occasionally there might be england possibly india a generation ago new zealand but really it's australia and the only way to fix that is to develop the infrastructure that sits beneath it so the 19th so a tours and and all the rest of it and this is the Mm. the first step in that story it's one of those things where focusing entirely on the results isn't really the point uh, it's, I, I mean, you'll come across this in the test documentary if you watch it. There's a lot of talk about the process, um, the process being more important than the results. And it is kind of corporate buzz speak in a way, but there is something to it as well that having this tournament is the start of something. It's not the end of something. You can't look at under-19s players and expect them to be the finished product. You certainly can't look at 
under-19s players from vastly underfunded women's programs in vastly underfunded countries, cricket-wise, full stop, and mm. expect them to be at the kind of level, you know, they're not going to be Kaisa Rabada in the under-19s World Cup, you know, remember him absolutely blowing that tournament apart. Mm. You're not going to have players at that kind of level from countries where the funding and the resources aren't there. So the fact that it's happening is the main bit. The results, I don't think we need to look at them too much. What we have seen in this tournament, Jeff, we've been kind of predicting over the last... I guess four years, five years, whenever it was that we first started doing dedicated conversations around running out the non-striker, that there would be a tipping point where it would be everywhere, that there'd be a proliferation of it, that there'd be you know, maybe a World Cup where everybody did it. Well, it feels like it is going to be the Women's Under-19 World Cup. There'd been a couple where the, the non-striker has been given not out and then there was one Jeff in the game between, was it Rwanda? Who were they up against? Pakistan. Pakistan. Zaibul Nisa, who's the Pakistan quick, and did it with great style as well. I mean, <laughs> the the fluid movement, the way she just glides into the crease, there was no sudden stop and lunging back and awkward situation. You know, she she did it in this very lithe and graceful manner and just, just reached out and tipped off the bales. And look, I mean, the non-striker was heading north at a great rate at that <laughs> point uh, and, and, and the bowler was nowhere near into the delivery action by the time the non-striker had left the crease. So, yeah, fair enough. But th- there is... There's momentum behind it, you know. There's yeah. there's movement behind it. We saw all of it with Mitchell Stark in the South Africa tests getting very close to doing it. I, I really wish that Tiernes De Bruyne had played the third test match just to see what would have happened there if he would have kept, uh, you know, dozily just wandering out of his crease. We saw Dan Christian give a warning in the Big Bash in the, the mm. last couple of days as well to Stevie Eskenazi. So I don't know. It's interesting. It's It's... There are certainly more players prepared to consider it. There haven't. There have been a lot who haven't quite gone through with it, but that can't be far off either. Well, basically, the man candidates are on are on notice, aren't they? You know, there have been many of them over the years. Players that we know, just as you describe it, dozily walk down the pitch, but now they. Yeah, and there's a few bits to this, as ever, and we'll quickly back over one or two of them. One is that yeah, we can celebrate the fun and the humour of this, and we will. Why not? It's just a game after all, but. What's likely to happen is that batting coaches and, and sides more generally will appreciate that it is now a live risk being run out at an striker's end mm-hmm. and they will need to retrain a little bit, at least some will, on how they back up. And that's fine, mm-hmm. right? Some, as we've always said, some might still try and steal a yard, so to speak, to use the jargon. And if they do, then so be it. That's a, that's a measured risk. But um, they'll do so knowing that there's every chance a bowler will take the bails off, will appeal, and, mm. they, and they will be given out, as we've seen you know, recently, even in, in the Big Bash with Adam Zampa, and we saw Muhammad Shami last week, and you mentioned Stark and De Bruyne before that. Like This is happening. It's not like a once-a-year event like Maver Duma was in 2021 or whatever it was. This is mm. a kind of a once-a-week event, and in this tournament, three or four times in the, in the space of a couple of days. And the natural extension of that is that when you see players doing it all the time, it'll probably create a culture where the realistic chances to execute a run-out of the non-striker will plummet because non-strikers will be attuned to this. Mm. And, and I, mm. I think that the last bastion, if you like, is test cricket. When will we see someone do it at test level? And to my way of thinking, all roads leads to the Border Gavaskar 
series that we're about to cover. The fact that Ashwin, <laughs> the great Ashwin, is still going to be the senior spinner for India. The fact that it's never really happened to an Australian test batter yet. No, I can't think of an Australian non-striker in the time we've been covering well, the, the side. First one. Been, well, apart from the first one. But, you know, in, in, in as far as, like, in all of the conversations in the last few years, mm. it's not as though, like, I don't know, people think of Marnus Labashan as a man candidate, right? That, uh, he's not. Mm. No one's got the reputation as being a, a lazy backer-upper. But I'll tell you what, if there is any out there, Ashwin will mm. have studied it and he will try it on. And that would be a great diplomatic incident. All hell would break loose. Uh, we will both be there commentating on that series. It'd be enormous <laughs> fun. Um, so we should be so lucky, I think, for it to actually play out on that very big stage of the Border Gavaskar series in February or March. Well, Labashane, remember, is the one in the UAE in 2018 who just stood there at the non-strikers end out of his ground and watched the ball hit Yassir Shah and roll back onto his stumps. <laughs> but I think he's been a bit more attentive about his backing up since then. Um, he's, he's, he has a strong will to improve, and I think he has. But, yeah, I, it, it's worth keeping a close eye on the non-strikers end to work out who is taking off early because because there'll be the evolution of it like you said if there's if there's a period where it happens a lot then the opportunities for it to happen will be become scarce and then bowlers won't do it because I you know I don't think they don't just do it out of the blue and hope that it'll work they do it when they've noticed a player consistently doing it previously so you've got to have form doing it before you're likely to get knocked off in exactly. that fashion so if players don't do it most of the time then that means that batters will be able to do it occasionally and get away with it in situations you know probably most likely in the last over of a t20 run chase and that kind of thing so maybe that's when we'll see the bales being taken most of all just one other point of frustration in this it feels like the ferocity around the jargon is now as powerful as that around the dismissal like just the fact that when using the term mancad people are going fucking crazy now and like there's obviously a number of different views about this and we've advanced them on here that some members of the mancad family have been against the term being used remember it's not in the laws or the icc playing regulations it's just a nickname right it's it's not hmm. anything official it's just whether you use that quite neat catch-all descriptor running at that on striker hmm. okay yeah that's a number of words mancad is one word and it's mm -hmm. a as we say, we, we've used it as a tribute to a great Indian all-rounder. But my sense online yesterday is that, you know, you can be supportive of running out the non-striker. But if you use Mancad, get ready mm. for a, uh, get ready for some broken fucking replies on Twitter, that's for sure. So <laughs> I think we just need to, like, calm down. It, it doesn't matter that much if that term, if that nickname still gets used. We saw Harsh Mancad, his grandson, in the media just a couple of weeks ago saying from his perspective, game on because the, the term is, is one that shouldn't, carry the, the baggage mm. that it has before because people are doing it more often and, and this is getting finally sorted out. I genuinely see both perspectives with yeah. that. You know, I understand that it was used for a long period of time in a sneering superior sort of way, you know, particularly from England or from the Anglosphere more generally. I think it's still possible to use it in a complimentary way. Um, that's, that's the name of the move in the same way as other athletes have particular signature moves named after them and yes you did a lot more than run out a non-striker but that's the, one of the things that has persisted uh jeff you, you touched on the dan christian stevie eskenazi moment from the big bash uh, now we haven't done a lot of coverage of the big bash we sort of said this offhandedly maybe the other week that we don't watch an awful lot of it that's for me 
time zone thing. You can only kind of take on so much cricket at this time of year. But what I can say is that we're reaching the business end. And it's been, by all reports, a very successful tournament. The run chases that have been higher than the last couple of seasons, the TV numbers are up. We've got 12 more games of the regular season, then the finals start, so 11 days away from the postseason. Perth Scorchers on top of the ladder. There were the Sydney Sixers, the Renegades, the Strikers and the Hurricanes there in the, the five final spots. And it doesn't look like the Stars in bottom spot or the Heat in seventh spot can make the final five. But yeah, I mean, I'm pleased to see that the conversation around the Big Bash is a positive one this year compared to the last couple of years where it did have a bit of a, a stench of death around it. That might be overplaying it. But, you know, there was a sense that it was going in the wrong direction. Maybe it's turned mm. the corner this year and, and that's a great thing. It does seem more cheerful and... Hopefully that's been helped by the new broadcast deal announcement. I think the the announcement that they were reducing the number of games, most people watching on, from what I could see, responded to that with a sigh of relief. Um, you know, okay, well, there are fewer games to track yeah. and, and to, to worry about and so they might be able to put more grunt into promoting the games that do happen and pull better crowds and, and get some of that sense of momentum back around it. So, you know, if that's started this season, then uh, that's all to the good. Jeff, there was a one-day international series that started in Queensland this week that's gone under the radar a little bit, but Australia's women, uh, ahead of going to the T20 World Cup, are playing Pakistan in, in three one-days. So that's the, that's the uh, the Women's World Championship cycle. That's a 50-over competition mm-hmm. they play around the world, and it's followed by, I think, three T20s before they head off and, and start um, their World Cup preparations. I think the tournament begins the same day as the Border Gavaskar series uh, on February the 9th. So um, of most note, Meg Lanning back into the side for her first international since the Commonwealth Games, making 67 with ease. Uh, Phoebe Litchfield, who we've been, I mean, I guess we've been tracking her career since she was about 15, given mm. she did a number of net sessions with the Thunder that went viral um, as, a, as a much younger player. But nevertheless, she made a half century on debut. She's the youngest Australian, man or woman, to make a, a 50 at the first time of asking at one day level. And look, she's getting her opportunities here. She's not in the World Cup squad, Jeff, but they're seeing this as an opportunity, aren't they, to, to play a few others who, who may not be in that final 15 for the T20 stuff. Well, yeah, and, and because this is 50 over, it's a little different, even though the squad is the same squad technically. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the next couple of ODIs if there's a strong rotation policy if someone like Georgia Wareham comes in to play, which I was surprised she didn't, you know, given that they've got her on the comeback trail from injury, that sort of thing. Uh, so Litchfield's a reserve for that World yep. Cup, which means if there's if if anybody drops out from a, a specialist batting perspective, she'll be the one in. Uh, I wonder if she got her opportunity in the 50-over stuff because... Georgia Redmayne's out. She did her Achilles mm. a few weeks ago and and I really feel for her at the moment. Like she's worked so hard over the last few years to make herself as good as she is and, and particularly in the 50 over stuff, you know, that's really Redmayne's best format in the same way that it's Elise Perry's format. That that batting style to be able to go longer rather than concentrating on the power game. So I'd, I'd, I would have been very surprised had she been fit you know, given that Healy's injured, given that there's a spot at the top, she probably wouldn't have kept wicket because Mooney would have been there. But, you know, if you've got an injured wicketkeeper bat opener in 50 over stuff going out, mm. Redmayne is all of those things and can be that perfect replacement. So, you know, this this would have been her time to have the opportunity to get that Australian cap and uh, she's not able to do so, which... You know, it's it it stings a bit. It, it's poignant. You know, Litchfield, I'm sure, will get plenty more opportunities down the road. We've been watching her 
make 50s in the Big Bash for what seems like three or four years now that she's been going around there. But it, it was this game... I mean, if you like, if you had the old football manager kind of software and you just did simulate match, this was the ultimate <laughs> simulated 50-over match between Pakistan and Australia. No one makes any runs for Pakistan except Bismarck makes a few, you know, 20-odd, knocking it around at the top of the order slowly, and then Nidadar makes a half-century and nobody else can do anything, and then Australia come out and knock it off. One down, two down? Um, uh, two down. They, yeah, they lost uh, Lanning just before... So Perry was out there for the, right. for the winning runs. Yeah, with a Lanning half-century that begins with a straight bat steer off the back foot through backward point for four. You know, the the quintessential Meg, Meg Lanning mm, shot. Mm. That's how she gets going in this innings and just proceeds from there. An Australian teenager bossing Pakistan. It, it's... I don't know. It, it's There's a frustration to how little Pakistan have progressed over... The last few years, there, there's there's been there've been a couple of jumps, there've been a couple of performances where you go, oh, here they go, you know, a couple of World Cup performances, but you know, for the most part, um, they're back to the mean, and and it's understandable why. Yeah, so well, Australia just have this production line, Pakistan don't as yet. Although in saying that, I mean, Fatima Sana who opened the bowling with Diana Bag, Diana Bag knocked over Beth Mooney early on, bowled her for one. You know, at her best, Diana Bags is as good a opening bowler is just going around in world cricket it's just a lack of support the fact that Fatima Sano I think she's 17 now um, she's got wheels as well so they've got some infrastructure there but you're right it's the same old names for, for Pakistan that we've seen for a long time and as part of that I'm, I'm pleased to see that Nita Dar made runs in, in the first one day but you look through the, the Australian bowling card you know they used eight bowlers it looks like an under 14s card everyone has got a trundle Megan shoot mm. um, bolt eight overs but everybody and so did Jess Jonathan sorry Jonathan two for 23 from her eight but beyond that Darcy Brown bowled four overs two for 21 Talia McGrath just a couple Elise Perry three Gardner five Alana King six Sutherland four it speaks to Australia's depth but also the fact that in a game like that mm. they really can they really can chuck the ball around and, and play it on their terms so yes two more one days in that series and we'll, we'll keep an eye on them in the next couple of weeks before they head off to South Africa. As we said before, that'll be when we're in India, for which India have named a 17-man squad for the first two test matches, which are at Nagpur and Delhi, starting on the 9th of February. And, Jeff, some interesting inclusions. Surya Kumar Yadav, age 32, the T20 Tyro, who has been just carving it up for India in the shortest form of late. He gets a start, or at least he's in the squad. I can't quite see how he gets in the 11, at least initially, given Rohit Sharma and KL Rahul, captain, vice-captain, will open. Pajara, great to see him back as a senior member of the team at three. Coley at four, Shreyas Iyer at five. But still, mm. um, a long series. There's a chance we'll get to see uh, a man with so much talent play test cricket for the first time. Yeah, it's an interesting one because if they throw in a six specialist bat, it'll be Shubman Gill. He's the backup opener, but he's also backup in the middle order. If if they go with, I think a lot of it depends on whether Jadeja is fit because he's been named in the squad subject to fitness. If right. he is fit, he'll probably bat seven. Your keeper will bat six, and that's likely to be Ishan Kishan, which is, is interesting because KS Barat has been the reserve keeper for what seems a long time now, yep. um, but might get leapfrogged now that Rishabh Pant's out. They might want a similar attacking sort of player in Ishan Kishan to come in there. Um, so it it depends on there being an omission or an injury, but it's a four-test series and we know that Indian management don't mind chopping and changing. We know that, you know, say Pajara has two bad test matches, maybe he gets squeezed out. 
Rohit Sharma has glass hamstrings, there's always the possibility of an injury to somebody from for any reason. And if there is an opening, then maybe SKY comes in. And I think that's what people want to see. I, most of the audience watching on would love to see what would happen here, whether he can do a Mike Hussey style thing. I mean, Hussey kind of became a T20 god after he became a good test player, mm. but it, maybe SKY could do it the other way around, both in their 30s when the opportunities really started flowing. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, the, the, there are a lot of familiar names here, right? I mean, this is the side that beat Australia a couple of years ago, but I mean, they won't have Boomer because Boomer mm. didn't quite recover from his back injury. They, they thought that he might make it to this squad, but not to be. Richard Punt's not there he, either. He got, another, he got another injury. He's done a butt muscle. He's got a gluteus uh. maximus problem, okay. um, Boomerah. So the, the Boomerah boom is a bit raw, if you will. Okay, duly noted. I mean, Jadeja, you know, he, he's always saved his best cricket for Australia. Pajara most of the time fits into that category as well. You know, Shreyas Iyer at number five, though, he is an unknown quantity in test cricket against Australia, which is good. You want to have that that energy coming through. Mohamed Shami will lead the attack, you'd imagine. Mohamed Siraj will be the other main seamer. Oh, I, 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 did, I did enjoy Yumesh Yadav um, getting picked in the squad for... Mm-hmm. Gosh, how many times has he featured in a in a Border Gavaskar squad going all the way back to probably 2011-12, I reckon, Jeff, was his first test cricket against mm-hmm. Australia as a, a much younger man, but he's down the pecking order. So, you know, Shami and Siraj would, would take the new ball. Then they'd have Ashwin, Akshar and Jadeja, who can all obviously bat to bulk up their bowling group on on pitches that will surely be spinning surfaces. So, yeah, no proof you sure. I heard you guys talking about him and his triple ton last week on Storytime with Brat over the weekend. Quite enjoyed listening to that when I was um, <laughs> washing clothes and drying clothes yesterday. I, was, uh, I said this on Twitter last night. I'd forgotten the extent to which a successful day of washing and drying clothes dictates success or failure as a parent with a newborn. Like the whole ball game is, can I get everything washed and dried and put away and ready to go again for the next night? And we did yesterday in no small part due to the company I had from you and Barat doing your thing on story time over the weekend. But yes, so um, Ishan Kishan, as you say, will, will be the starting keeper having found his way up the pecking order. So another guy who's more known for his short form cricket. So it's got to be bloody exciting. Can't wait to get over there. And there's uh, Jadav Vanadkut, who is back into the team. I mean, he played almost longer ago than Umesh Yadav first did, but yeah. hasn't played in the interim, you know, got back in the test team just recently as well. So it, it's quite a fun squad in a way. I like this. I like that, that, you know, they've gone with stories. There's plenty of narrative. If there was a fly-on-the-wall documentary being made in the Indian dressing room, it'd be a good one this time around. <laughs> no, no, no chance of that. Uh, more fun for us over the weekend with the Indian side through Ashwin. Uh, we put up a clip of us talking last week about, you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but kind of seriously as well about the the attributes that Ashwin would bring to the test captaincy if it were ever sent his way. And that, that you know, uh, that took off, Jeff. We, we, were, we were very busy in our replies, um, you know, as some people very earnestly told us it wouldn't be appropriate and others got, kind of got yeah. on board with us and, and uh, joined the bandwagon. Maybe one day, maybe if <laughs> Rohit Sharma's hamstrings did snap, in one of those test matches, they might see fit to um, promote Ashwin ahead of KL Rahul, just because we know that Ashwin just loves playing against Australia, and it's going to be, it's going to be for him a, another defining series. Getting towards the end of his career, he's probably got 500 test wickets in the crosshairs now, and he may not play much beyond that. So, uh, yeah, an exciting stage of his development. Make it happen. Make it happen. Um, a, another player who has played a lot against Australia and, well, isn't towards the end, but but in the, the, the later part. Virat Kohli, I wonder if he's going to 
find himself having a big series because mm. he's figured out how to do it again in one day cricket. Three tons in his last four hits. I mean, that helps counterbalance the ton drought a bit. And the Sri Lanka, there was, there was one against Sri Lanka we talked about last week, but then the one to follow up, 166, not out, eight sixes in the innings, four of them in the last couple of overs, just hitting down the ground imperiously, loves batting against Sri Lanka. I mean, how many of Tendulkar's tons were against Sri Lanka as well? That that particular relationship has been very productive for Indian batting in international cricket. But it, it's got him up to 74 international mm-hmm. hundreds at the moment. He's only three short of Tendulkar in one-day hundreds, so he's up to 46, Tendulkar 49. I mean, he should get that now, and, and then it's really a case of whether he can get the mojo back in test cricket as well and start adding some test tons there to to open up the path to a hundred hundreds again you know i mean let's start talking about it now in the low 70s why not i think it's um, i think it's on again yeah i think it's on again so 74 acknowledging that they play a one-day world cup in india this year and india you know in the future tours program and let's let's give coley that will we like he'll have as an international cricketer, five more years, you know, the duration mm-hmm. of, the, of the next two World Test Championship cycles and not just this one-day World Cup, but in all probability, the one-day World Cup that follows. That's a lot of cricket. You throw in the T20 internationals that he'll play as well and a couple of World Cups in that format. I'm not saying that T20-100s are as easy to come by. He's only made one of them, let's remember. But, yeah, I think Coley 100 international 100s is, is back on again. Um, they they won that last one day, by the way, Jeff, by 317 runs, which is the, the highest ever victory by runs in, in all of one-day cricket. And that was the – well, they've played 4,500 of them, so it's a pretty big sample size. But, yeah, they they did it easily to finish that fairly uncompetitive series. Having had a yeah, pretty good scrap with Sri Lanka in the T20s, they bossed them in the, in the one-days. But, yeah, if, if he can get – say, a couple against Australia and build that momentum into the World Cup. And if you can have a, a big World Cup, so four, let's say, and getting towards you know that 80 mark by the, the start of next year, yeah, I, I, I want to believe. I think Coley 100-100s would, would be a, a fitting way for him to finish what's been a, a magnificent international career, three-quarters of the way there nearly. Well, Border Gavaska times. Um, and, and I wonder if that influences whether whether the pitches are a little friendlier for batting than they might otherwise be Ooh, I like <laughs> as well. You know, does he does he actually want a Bunsen? Does he want the sort of wicket where, you know, 40 is a good score? I'm not sure if he does. I'm not sure. Where, not where, sure I mean, who, I guess it, it, different cities will or different grounds will, you know, have the ability to, you know, they can really turn the screws in some places, can't they? When it comes to mm. turning tracks. Delhi, I remember in 2013 when Nathan Lyon took a seven-wicket bag, you know, it was a sand pit, whether they could go that way in the second mm. test match. But surely that's the way they start, like it was in Pune in 17, uh, where that was designed to be all over in three days and Australia won, won the shootout. Well, I don't know a lot about Nagpur as a test venue. It's not like something I have a lot of background knowledge on, but I wonder whether they can set it up that mm-hmm. test one and two um, will be fast and furious when it comes to the spinners for both sides and, and maybe Coley can fill his boots in at the serene Durham Shala and then at Ahmedabad. Well, to be fair, Ahmedabad last year was the two-day test match, mm-hmm. wasn't it? So maybe not, not quite so good there. Well, yes, but you, you can get a good surface there, I'm sure, if, if you want to at a, a stadium like that. Shall we do a little nerd pledge before our interview? Let's do that. Who have we got this week, Jeff? All right. Nerd pledge is the game that we play with some of the people who listen to this show who send in 
contributions to fund the show and the number is not a normal number. It's a cricket number and we have to figure out why it is a cricket number. Edward Greggs is a first-time pledger. He sent through £4.89, so that means our number is 489. Yep. Decimal point can float wherever you like. What does 489 mean? I've got to say, Adam, when I saw 489, the first thing I thought was 48.9, and the first thing I thought around that was, what's Michael Clark's test average? Because help me out here. I remembered, and I was sure, I'm like, I know it's 48 point something. But it's not. It's 49.1. Yeah. But I've got this... I think what you're remembering is that Clark's average dipped below 50 in his second last test match at Nottingham. Yeah. And he needed to score... He needed to score an absurd amount of runs in his final test at the Oval. It needed to be like an unbeaten 150 180 something. something. 180, yeah. To get back above 50 again. So it went below 50... In the first mm-hmm. innings at Trent Bridge, and of course it got worse after a, a double failure there. So maybe mm-hmm. how you're remembering it is that he dropped below 49 as well, but really the, it was about whether he could make it up to 50. That could account for why you've remembered it this way. But I've got this real Mandela effect thing where if you had asked me with a gun to my head, name the first two digits of Michael Clark's test average, I would have said I'm safe. I know it's 48 point something. Like I yeah. know it's 48 point something. I have read it hundreds of times over the years being 48 point something, and now suddenly... It's 49.1, and I don't know how this has happened. Like, it's really confusing me. The only thing I can think of is, am I thinking of 28 tonnes and I've taken the eight across to make it 48 when it's actually 49, but I have no memory of it ever being 49. That doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense at all. Like, I knew it was just short of 50, but something weird has happened. Either I've switched parallel universes or my brain has some synapse misfiring because... This was a disconcerting way to start. I'm questioning a lot of things that I thought that I knew. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, that's um, you know, you 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 see, yeah, the Mandela effect is a is a real thing. Um, the, the, I, I I loved um, Daniel Cherney, a friend of the podcast. He works at News Corp these days. Threw up a, a little thread of Mandela effect sporting moments last year, and one that stood out to me was um, that James Heard never coached Essendon again after the drug scandal. Of course, James Heard did go back to coach mm. Essendon again. He was sacked because they had a shit season upon his return. But, you know, the, the consensus for whatever reason is that Heard never got the chance to go back to Windy Hill and coach again, never got to return to the hangar at Tullamarine when, well, he did. There'd be yeah. lots of those in cricket as well because it's such a number-oriented game where there'd be, there'd be stuff that we would just take as assumed and take as read as a cricketing community, which, which wouldn't be true, I'm sure. We, we'll go into this another time. Maybe there's a... Maybe there's a topic there for our Discord channel during the week. Mm. I'm sure a lot of people think that Renshaw and Hanscom in this squad might play for the first time since 2017 when actually they both played at Johannesburg in 2018. There you go. That, that, that's good. We should probably, yeah, the, yeah the, 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 we, we've probably um, taken it as assumed that everybody knows what the Mandela effect is. It's, you know, it's a basically a, a false memory that is shared by lots and lots of people and it's been kind of mm. researched and it's a thing. It's, uh, and, uh, and some people posit that it's proof of alternate timelines that that there is a universe in which Michael Clark averaged forty eight point nine, and that's the one that I've just jumped over from. Um, so okay. to carry on with the number, there are no women's players in any format averaging forty eight point nine. The only ones in men's cricket, in Test cricket, there's Bruce Mitchell, the South African opener from the forties, who we've in fifties, who we've talked about previously on the show 
Interestingly, as of right now, Virat Kohli averages 48.9. This can't be the number because he's played test matches since Edward Greggs sent the number through, which brought his average down, actually, the Bangladesh series. I mean, this is interesting. As recently as 2019, he averaged 55.1. And that was, that's not a flash in the pan. That's after 81 test matches. And now right. he's down at 48.9. So hence my interest to see whether he can go north again. Pajara used to average above 50. He's gone all the way down to 44. You know, they, they, there's a very select group of Indian players who averaged above 50, and they were two of them, and they're not anymore. But here's where I ended up, Adam, and I think you'll enjoy this because recently you spoke to me about a game in 1934 at Folkestone, Mm. which was a, a, a sort of carnival tour match at the I end did. of the 1934 Ashes Tour in September on a Saturday when they were wrapping up by playing hither and yon all over the country, Bradman's Australians. Uh, yeah, they were, they were the, playing the, the Australian eleven against the England eleven with half the England test squad about a month mm-hmm. after the Ashes had finished in 34 where Bradman made a like a 90-minute a ton or something like that. Mm-hmm. So... The week after that, they play a minor counties game at the Oval. Yep. The match that I'm looking at isn't the last match on the tour. It's the second last, technically even the third you could call it, because the last game on the tour is a one-day single innings match against a North of Scotland team who they actually ended up playing twice because the Australians beat them so quickly the first time. They were supposed (laughs) to play a two-day game. And the Scots lost by an innings in a day after being bowled out for 98 and 48. And so they just scheduled another one-day game the next day just to back it up. This was in a place called Forres, which is near Inverness, very, very north Scotland. Not sure how the weather was in late September. Um, But the second last game of the tour is on a Saturday and it's the HD Leveson-Gower 11 in Scarborough. We've mentioned this before. This is Sir Henry Dudley Gresham Leveson-Gower and if you've got a name like that, you get a match named after you and most of the England team shows up to play. So they've got Bill Bowes, the you know body line specialist. They've got Hedley Verity. They've got Stan Nichols and Les Townsend who each took over a 1,000 first-class wickets. Herbert Sutcliffe batting Patsy Hendren, Morris Leyland. I mean, I'm trying to figure out whether these games were serious in the way that they were played or not, because this team gets beaten handsomely by the Australians. They lose by an innings because Ponsford makes 92, Bradman and Stan McCabe make hundreds, so three of the top four with big scores. Australia makes 489, which is the nerd pledge number that we're looking for, 489, and they're going at 4.6 runs and over. Ah, oh, basketball, ah, oh, 1934, here we are again. More like Bradball um, because, you know... Th- they actually figured out how to score quickly. Uh, Chuck Fleetwood-Smith takes 10 in the match. They enforce the follow-on. It's a three-day game with a rest day. Beautiful areas there again, um, <laughs> which helps encourage the follow-on. And in this same match, Bradman, McCabe and Sutcliffe each pass 2,000 runs for the season. Uh, Fleetwood-Smith goes past 100 wickets for the season. But my favourite bit out of the entire thing, Adam, is the umpires for this match. One of them was J.A. Newman. The other one was A. Dolphin. A. Dolphin. That's all it says on the scorecard. This match was umpired by A. Dolphin. That's better than A. Fielder, who used to play for Kent. A. Dolphin umpired them. If, if you want to find a wacky novelty popcorn charity game, get one umpired by a dolphin. That is the most fun you can have on a cricket pitch. There were there were brothers when I lived in Warrnambool. I'm not sure whether this is true or not. It's just one of those stories that do the rounds. The Nasida brothers, 
So it was said. N-O-S-E-D-A, if I recall correctly. And the brothers were known as Andrew and Peter. So on the scorecard, you would have had J Newman and A Dolphin. So the Nasita brothers were on the scorecard. A Nasita and P Nasita. <laughs> I mean, did it, did it happen? Is it real? Is it real? Is it just one of those things that got said at the whalers and became law? <laughs> I don't know. I'd I love mean, to find out. This, this, is a, this is a town where groups of boys in the 20s used to go down and whack off over the statue because it was the sexiest thing in town. I mean, come on. You, you make your own fun in Warrnambool. <laughs> do love that place. You should um, uh, our uh, we we did a video down there, didn't we? We did a yeah story time episode down there. A that's couple of that's ago. my callback. If you're confused about what I'm talking about about the statue, go and find our video. The dirty angel, Warrnambool. they call it. Mm. It looks mm. like she's um, fellating. No, no, I think it looks like she's. It, it's it's a real stretch of the imagination to find anything particularly yeah um, below the belt there. Anyway, all right. Well, that's been nerd pledge. <laughs> Thanks to Edward Greggs. Uh, uh, first-time pledger, long-time listener, I suppose. You can be uh, a first-time pledger as well via patreon.com forward slash the final word. That's where you contribute to helping the show do what we need to do week in, week out around the year. It also means that you can join the Discord chat page. There are various meetups happening in the next couple of months, which is pretty cool. There was one at the SCG last week. Jeff, I'm not sure if you made it down there, but a number of our listeners uh, we're um, able to catch up during the, the Sydney test. That'll continue throughout 2023 with some of the most wonderful people you could ever meet. I mentioned it last week, but I, w- I will again. That, they, that community has been so lovely uh, around the arrival of young Peggy Amelia, and that kind of reflects the way that people are, are hardwired on there. So get involved. I should also say, in reference to our find a word, broader community, as before we go to the interview, that we are up and about when it comes to preparing our Lord's Taverners half marathon, Jeff. There are people signing up left, right and centre to be part of that in Edinburgh um, on the 28th of May. So if you wish to be a final word runner for the Lord's Taverners at the Edinburgh half marathon, which I'm doing for the tabs, and we've got a fundraising page. I'll put the link in the show notes. Why not? It's just one link for anyone who's running under the final word banner. And yes, if you want to be part of that. And I should also say, if you want to run the London Marathon for the tabs, which is pretty hard to do, that's like a golden ticket. Getting to run in the London Marathon for a charity is not easy to do. The tabs have still got some spots. They've said to me, if any of our final worders want to run in that, they can in April. So get in touch with us in the usual way, ideally on Discord or finalwordcricket at gmail.com and you can do that. And we will also, in our show notes, pop the sign-up link uh, for the Lord's Taverners. That's what we're all we're asking at the moment, isn't it, Jeff? It's straightforward. We just want to have more people as part of the Lord's Taverners community. They do such great work in the cricket world and far beyond. And if you can sign up to their newsletter, you can find out about events like the Half Marathon in Edinburgh and so on throughout the course of 2023. You can do all of that and that's well worth following up if you want to get involved. Uh, why don't we take a break and then it'll be me with Adrian Brown. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word and we're very pleased to welcome back to the show Adrian Brown. It's been a minute since your last documentary series came out. This one, the new series has just been released. Um, you know, we've been talking about having babies on The Final Word. This is maybe a little bit like that, that feeling of, of seeing it take its first steps out into the world. How does it feel this time around? Yeah, it does. It's funny 
having gone through it a second time, I suppose, having the the first sort of series released a couple of years ago now, that maybe not as much fear, I think, as the initial uh, series that released, but, but at the same point, fear for different reasons, given the expectation of how well I think the first series was received or... or just how different it was first time around that people were suddenly, oh, wow, we get to see behind the closed doors of, you know, the Australian cricket team. Whereas this, I think the expectation was there because of the first right. series, what are we going to see and, and what's going to unfold of, um, you know, the issues and everything else that happened over these series. Like you've got less of a surprise factor in terms of being right in there. Absolutely. I think so because you couldn't just rely on on these images, which almost stood for themselves the first time around and go, mm. oh, wow, Aaron Finch walking back into the change rooms after being dismissed, that's just a scene on itself. It's like, never seen that before, haven't yeah. seen this before. It's like, yeah, well, that's, that's been done. Um, what else do we have? And then also we did actually have, you know, we knew going in that this was very much about, okay, the focus on the players so we weren't sitting over the shoulder of Justin Langer through the games or yep. Andrew McDonald at a later stage. We very much were trying to see, hey, what were the players up to moving around in that sense? So we almost didn't have that, I guess, ability to have that narrator constantly, you know, flow through the games and then see that in real time in Doc's footage mm. as well. Mm. It's something that you notice with sequels. A lot of the time, sometimes they kill off a main character from the original um, or they move them to the background in order to create some space to do something different. You wouldn't have known at the start of the process that Langer wasn't going to be there at the end of the process um, and, you know, the first series was built around him so much. But was that an opportunity that that gave you some space to do something different? It, it created the need to do something different? I think so. And, and even probably just coming in for the second time, you're always looking to maybe do – we couldn't just say – well, let's just paint and colour what we did last time and we're going to mm. talk through this series because you never know how Series 1 will play out. You know, maybe the, the Ashes series would have hopefully been a bit closer for dramatic effects for, you know, to lean into the story of the games a little bit more. But we, we certainly did just know what we didn't do in Series 1 was spend a bit more time or what, with players away from the game or tell a story like Glenn Maxwell who didn't make the, the final team. You know, and to be able to spend a bit more time in those moments was something that we were excited about and going in that we knew. And for an audience of this podcast, that Glenn Maxwell story is a real heartbreaker in the last episode. You know, you you get this emotional rawness and this proximity, this this very transparent honesty. I mean, were you are you surprised that you're able to get players to be that open about how they're feeling about things? I think so. I, I think so in a sense, but I also, I don't know, maybe there's something to it that I'm sure you guys find. Anytime you actually really have the time to interview someone and really talk to them and you're interested in their story, most people are sort of happy to talk and give. If, if you go beyond, mm. you know, the impact and the results and everything else, it's like, no, we want to know about you and the real the real core and, 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 mm. how, and how you are and what makes you tick and you're focusing on them. Usually people will give something back, I think. But in saying that, in Glenn went, you know, beyond that, beyond what we thought he would. And as soon as we saw it, even from the very first cut we put together, we thought, oh, we've got something pretty powerful here. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and it was amazing to see Glenn like that. And then what was also great was like being able to say, no, 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 we need to carve the time out in that, in that 45 minutes to really sit with this for a while. And then another story 
might have to, to drop out of the way to make time for Glenn's story. Yeah, it's interesting uh, how you go about those editorial calls. You know, something like the Hobart Ashes test gets about 20 seconds um, because, well, that's about how long the match actually went. And then, you know, there's 15 minutes on a Travis Head fitness test. It's interesting in that at the start of making it, you wouldn't think that that's how you would prioritise those things. But but the way that the search for story, it seems, drives that for you. Exactly. and And that's probably the hardest part. And I think even... On the flip side of that is even say for Travis Head, player of the series in the Ashes last year, that you go, oh, did we did we spend enough time with Travis mm. through his moments? And you know, there's the nice piece at the start with Alex Carey, and there's there's a bit of the Gabba with, with his first hundred, which sort of sets the tone for Travis yeah. as he is now, but um, and also helps tell that story of the team playing freely and you know unleashed a little bit. But um, I guess that's also that point of difference to go well. It's not a highlights vehicle mm-hmm. per se that, you know, people can click on and go, well, there's the story of the match. What's sure. other stories going on beneath that, whether, you know, that's, you know, I always hark back to Glenn Maxwell. A lot of people have asked, oh, you know, how come you've never really followed the players that were out of the team? And one of the reasons was was that, and maybe we could do it even more so in Sri Lanka, is because the touring party is together. Sometimes they might move off and go back to their respective states or, or, or other things that you don't get the opportunity to follow that story mm. through. And, I mean, your ability to roll with the punches, as it were, like I can't imagine that at the start of that Ashes series you would have anticipated you'd be making a whole episode on Scott Boland and Usman Khawaja, and yet that's the way it pans out. Yeah, which is amazing, isn't it? Like it, like it, it truly is in that sense, even at the point, you know, it's like well, what the Melbourne three days, it's like, okay, well, what do we have here and then, you know, just expanding that out and sitting with it more. And then I remember I remember when Usman scored that first 100, it's like, oh, there's a great story. But then the beauty of being able to come back in the second innings and make another 100, which, and the way the story's told, that first 100 is is a certain perspective on Usman, mm-hmm. you know, having the opportunity of taking it. And then the second one is almost, you know, mirrors this, um, you know, perspective on life that Usman has told through that second 100. And something like, you know, we've mentioned on this show before, the Welcome to Country at the Boxing Day test where Artie Joy, Wanda Murphy mentioned Scott Boland by name, the crowd goes up. I mean, is is that a sort of moment at the time watching it? Do you pick that and think, well, there's something that could be something? Or, or I mean, I suppose it comes into context with what happens in the game as well. But And that's was- almost the beauty of probably the beauty of the series of making these that you never know what comes into context given mm. the events that might unfold, whether it's a day later or a week later or a couple of months later, that, you know, in, in sort of putting this together, is, I don't know how back in, you know, previous generations when you were cutting film, you know, and splicing it together and go, there's your edit, and you want to unpack it, you've got to go back and un- unravel. The beauty of the editing systems now is that you almost have, um, we call them like little edit pods where you'll cut a meeting down or, you know, a match down to these specific 10 moments. Mm-hmm. Three might only make the next pass because they have to tick to tick off. They go, well, why does it, you know, get to the next stage or it needs a resolution later on? Some never resolve themselves. Some don't mm-hmm. quite go anywhere and some are just too hard to work in with the flow and the narrative. So you're constantly and constantly dropping scenes, adding scenes, all that sort of thing. So how does it work, the mechanics of this? Because you've got Doc in there shooting every day pretty much. What kind of volume of footage are you working with and how do you – I mean, it must be a mountain to begin with. How do you 
start that process of whittling it down. It is. One thing that we were, it was probably the thing we learned most from that first series is just watch every frame because you think you might be able to shortcut and go, well, let's just focus in day three and day two and focus in on these stories, these stories. But without watching absolute every frame, you just miss. I think some of my famous moments, my, my favourite moments within the series are just like it might just be a visual moment and just a shot. Mm-hmm. And that might say as much about somebody's character in the dressing room as, you know, the spoken word through an interview. So they're really important things. And how, how many hours I haven't done quite the calculation, but even, say, the broadcast footage in itself, important almost watching every frame because you're looking for that one sound bite that we don't use any narration. We haven't sort of, I guess, built any narration through this series. It's all done through the interviews that we conduct and hopefully you're finding a a linking grab from an interview and then equally with the broadcast footage by watching every day and, again, pulling all these clips out, you're just looking for that moment where um, a commentator just sets up how important this next 10 minutes is. Yeah. Like that's they're the critical moments. You go, oh, I found it. Yeah, so often it's it's the commentary grab that does that job for you, that gives the match position and that sort of thing. And, yeah, the small moments I notice, you know, something about how quietly and awkwardly Scott Boland sits there when he first comes into the dressing room, you know, or the difference between, you know, the way that Cameron Green comes in after he's got out and sits down quietly by himself versus Travis Head launching a bat across the dressing room. You know, the, there's there's such contrast in the characters in just the, the observations that aren't spoken about. Yeah, it is, and I, I find myself having rewatched it. You know, we've watched it a number of times. You always pick up a little something, a little bit different. Whether that's depending on who's sitting where in a meeting, mm-hmm. or you know how players will talk to each other or let each other come into conversations and other things. That there's always just an extra little bit of focus that you'll find when you're going through that stuff. I mean, what's your technique for trying to work out? what grabs you i mean there are these there are the small intimacies and i think those are the things that really interest people like something like the night watchman conversation when lion and nisa are sitting there talking about who's going in next and it's it it gives you more of an insight in a way i mean does doc get on the phone at the end of a day and say i've got something really good from today or or is it is it up to you to try to tag those moments Sometimes it's, it's it's sometimes driven because you could never predict that. So the beauty of Doc of just knowing, hey, that's happening, that's being aware, and maybe that was the beauty also. Of, that's a perfect um, example of stepping away from inside the, the specific coach's box and going, hey, what are the players up to? If not for that, we probably would have been in the coach's box at that, that point in that evening, but looking for where the players are going to. And then Doc, I think, once he knows he's in a good team, he can just sort of sit within it. The interesting part that possibly we always have is some of these scenes could probably either run a bit longer, but then you're also concerned about time mm. and overall the the flow of the episode because you never want to be too long in a scene that people are starting to go, okay, I've seen enough of this, what's next? So there's a really fine balance between being there long enough and letting it, okay, we've got to move on and get to the next moment because you want a certain amount of pace within these episodes that... 45 minutes moves through quick, but but equally so. Sometimes you just want to sit in a moment. Is that why you brought it down to it's four episodes this time around, half as many as the first time? I think not really. It's funny because I've always been, like, say you had an amazing Ashes series with five mm. tests. As you say, we showed 20 seconds of Hobart. That was one, if that was a, a, a great test match, might have gone longer. You could, you know, you might be able mm. to extrapolate just one Ash series out to four episodes. 
but I've always been pretty strong on rather than going, oh, we've got to make it four and just fill, fill, fill. Hopefully it can run what it's what it's worth. You know, the yep. interesting one on that is you think the Sydney test, the end of the Sydney test in the Ashes was a really great finish, really yep. dramatic finish. But it felt like this strange moment in mm. the story where telling go, hey, we've just told the viewers the Ashes have just been one three zip. Mm-hmm. But we've told Usman's story to then build up to this dramatic crescendo of, oh, what's going to happen on the fifth day of the Sydney test? I don't know. I don't know if that would have been confusing for viewers to sort of take in and go, well, hang on, you've just told me that Ashes is over. Yeah. You know? And there's there's very little England in the, that Ashes story because it's all about the personalities in that Australian team. And so in a way, focusing on the draw is is focusing on the opposition, which you know, you don't do. I mean, I noticed a similar thing in Pakistan in the draw in Karachi. There's the focus on Baba Azam. The focus isn't on Mohammed Rizwan, who comes out and makes an incredible hundred in the last session. But in a way, that you can't tell too many stories at the same time. That that, that I think is the hardest part. You just can't fit everything in. And at the end of you know the edit, it just needs to be a story that viewers, for the first time, they can watch and go. Mm. You've given me enough to follow the story without overloading me to go, hang on, I can't connect all the dots and so then I can't connect to the story. Mm. Were there things you learned from the first time around that you were able to do better this time? Certainly being at peace without trying to control it so much, like it just going, hey, whatever whatever happens will unfold. I, th- I think it was certainly a challenge in, in not having sort of you know, Justin Langer, like a bit being there present to really lean in on the coaches. I think in that first series, you know, by, by following the coaches quite, quite closely, that they always worked as this, oh, timestamp, here where we are, here's the build-up to the next test, here's the plans, here's everything else. That was a, a harder challenge, I think, going in of how we connect the flow. Mm. And I think, I think probably just working out, because we didn't have this challenge in the first episode, when we go to these backstories, as we called them, whether that's, you know, Alex Carey, Travis Head, Nathan Lyon, and these stories away from the game, where do they drop in? Where's the moment to jump out of the, the match vision, jump out of the test match, leave, and hopefully join back in? They were they were probably a challenge that, that we just sort of, you know, you, we were constantly moving those to go, maybe that fits here, maybe that fits here. needs to be close enough to a performance again in a match that there's sort of some resolution to that moment or you're introducing this character that where's the payoff going to be hmm. it's interesting that you, like because you get an ashes without much competitive tension you do get to lean into the storytelling more it's interesting to me that you've got you've got a point maybe in australian cricket where it, there's some sort of reckoning about race and australian cricket's poor history on race and then the way that Ashes series works out, the stories are about an Aboriginal player and a Muslim player, and that's not forced. That's just the way that the most compelling stories of that series worked out. Is there a sense of satisfaction in getting to tell stories that matter beyond just talking about the cricket? Definitely. I I think definitely. And stepping away from it because... Even in that sense, when those moments happen, you're like, wow, they were the talk of the news cycle. Everyone spoke about Scotty Bowen, everyone spoke about Usman Khawaja, and then maybe there's this sense in time that you go, not how do we tell these different, but people already know these stories. People know Scotty mm. Bowen's performance. How can we either go a little bit deeper? How can we find more meaning in it? How can we 
I, I guess, keep that story and tell it either in a different manner or, or somehow hopefully tell the whole story of it or give it a greater sense of purpose. Mm. Um, and it feels like in a sense that it, it has done that. And, and it's nice, I think, to, for it to be a, a marker of a moment of, of people can look back and go, oh, I, I sort of maybe I didn't get all the full picture in that story. And and I think with the, certainly with the Scott Bowman mm. with some examples he spoke about there and, and even Usman, it's been great reading, I think, some of the follow-up feedback yep. to those stories. I think that's been really powerful. And something like, you know, the way that Boland was so shy in every interview that he did during that week, this was the first time when I heard him open up a bit more about it and, and actually be able to respond in a fuller kind of way, you know, maybe because he'd been able to talk for long enough and, and get comfortable enough to express himself rather than just say, oh, it's nice to be here and, and uh, you know, I feel a bit embarrassed at all the attention. I think so and time is like, wonderful in that sense that time even gives us all context to, to reflect and to go, okay, I've gathered my thoughts and maybe for Scott, no, it really did happen. He's never going to be, it's not, never going to change from how humble Scott Boland is, but he can, I think, now in distance appreciate how amazing it was and how amazing mm -hmm. an experience it was. It was, you know, and I even, you know, you talk about little moments, the shot of Scott Boland walking off even with his daughter and carrying a teddy bear just at the end in, in, in an empty MCG was, oh, that equally speaks to all parts Scott Boland as everything else that happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the most words that he said out there probably in the middle were, oh, you've left monkey behind, you know, which is, which is a great <laughs> a great moment. Um, and I wonder what it's like for you as well, having sifted through all the footage from the first one, then the second one, you spent so much time with some of these characters and you watch character development happen in real time. You know, someone like Steve Smith in this series who seems so much happier now, you know, now that he's not captain, he, he seems much more relaxed, he does his thing, he's able to have his eccentricities and, you know, fix all of his 83 pairs of gloves and sort of be himself. But he seems, you know, he, he comes across as a more relaxed person in this, you know. Do, do you get to track those actual changes within personalities? I, I do. I, I think the most... Fascinating one, and I actually heard, heard him talk about it in, in a soundbite off the off the launch. And Marnus spoke about Marnus Lavishane spoke about how he hadn't done played you know too many test matches without the Amazon crew. And across these series goes from Marnus making his debut mm. in Dubai, getting recalled for a Sydney test match, you know, and then the, you know the the Lords test match, and seeing Marnus at all points along the way. Mm. To where he is now and the confidence he has within the change room and he's standing in the game. I find him a fascinating study. And even Travis Head, further to that too. And they both debuted in that Dubai test match really early on. And, and you know, both, you know, in that first innings didn't have the greatest performance. But mm -hmm. to look where they are now, and I, I find that, and I haven't done one day, it would be amazing to hear and find the audio and somehow listen back to those original interviews that we did and to see what their perspective on cricket was like then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so often, particularly early in a career, you get a very stunted version of a person because because a cricketer's pushed in front of a camera and told to talk to it and they're not used to doing that. They don't want to do that. That's, that's not why they play the game. I think those have been... You know, those personal stories also that have been most interesting to follow. I'm interested, what, what were your perspectives of, of watching Series 2 to Series 1 and, and, and the change? Was it 
what you thought it was going to be? Was it a different series from series one? Well, I mean, I was surprised that it was shorter because I just assumed that the nature of a streaming platform would be max content, you know, let's just have as much as possible. Um, so in a way that spoke to good editorial judgment to say, well, we're just going to use what we've got. You know, we're going to make it the most compelling version rather than try to fill out a certain number of episodes. But, yeah, the character study side of it, that is that is what has changed. I mean, there are those moments in season one, you're suddenly driving around with Aaron Finch in his car, driving from the game to go home, you know, and sit on the couch. And, and that was surprising, you know, that was a jump. But I suppose, I mean, how do you balance, because some of the, I'm, I've been hearing this from people in England watching this saying that they resent this documentary because it makes them like Australian players, you know, and they're like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to like Australian cricketers. That's, that's not reasonable. But I mean, you're balancing between wanting to do something real and, and credible and not wanting to do a puff piece like, to do PR for the Australian cricket team. Where does that sit? You know, how do you try to strike that balance? Yeah, it's funny that because, look, you can't do it without the help of Cricket Australia now, with the help of the team. We're embedded within them. So you, you, you're mindful of that. But there's sort of never at any point to say, oh, we really need to put more of him, this player, in and over X. We need to build up the profile here, there. We were very... You know, we were given full, complete creative control to, to tell the story as we saw it. There's a leadership, I guess, committee, um, you know, that was sent back, you know, early edits just to make sure, you know, because you still want to be fair. There's still maybe a conversation or something that should be that was filmed that you shouldn't be filmed, you know, and that's just fair and reasonable. And I, I probably always put myself in that situation that some, somebody asked me to, hey, can I film your work for a year? So you yeah. go about it. Of course, you'd want to be able to work with them and say, okay, well, I don't even know if I'd be open to that. But yeah. if I was, can I just have a sense of say, hey, here's some context to these moments or here's why I feel uncomfortable about that. But yeah. there really wasn't that much at all to be concerned about. I, I think the core part might just be getting down and speaking to the Glenn Maxwell example of just I think people truly do like people either being vulnerable, you know, authentic's a term that's used a lot now. I think people just appreciate that, you know, and, and there are points. we You cannot in any way fabricate the dressing room. Like, Doc, can, no way, we never ask anyone to reshoot, stand in a better position for light, do anything else. What is truly happening on game day, whether that's the players preparing themselves, Marnus with his toasty, David Warner doing the laundry, yep. you're never going to sit there and go, hey, this would be a great scene. Can you pick up all the socks and everything else, do that, and then say to X player, okay, has anyone got any whites? <laughs> you just, you're not going to. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, that was the, the two most surprising bits of the show for me. David Warner caring about not putting dark socks in with the whites and Mana Slabashane putting a cheese toasty in the fridge. I mean, that's a crime against humanity. That shouldn't be happening. But um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was interesting as well that, You've, you've got those little moments and, and you asked about the first season and I think this is one that so many people came to. Like Usman Khawaja is not a big part of the first season really but his exchange with Justin Langer is uh, the most one of the most compelling scenes. He is the star of the second season really. He's the one who – and it's not just in the Sydney episode because then you go to Pakistan, he's really taking this leadership role off the field as well, you know, being the kind of cultural bridge and, and all of the rest of it. I mean, that – that's an interesting development that he 
has that that he'd grown in confidence so much because you know the the way I mean I've been covering cricket most of his career and probably 10 years ago he was a pretty quiet often fairly chippy sort of character and it, it's like he's blossomed in this way later into his career yeah it's interesting that too because we certainly thought at a point you know well husband's had this great Sydney test we've spent a lot of time with him episode three we're back in Pakistan and we're sort of there's a lot of Usman in here, but how could it not be to make a century back, you know, in the town where his father was? Like, how can you not lean into that again? Hopefully you're telling a different side of the story, which I think we have, you know, the, that, that episode too is very much about Usman, the individual, and then it's that broader part of his family and his father and that mm-hmm. connection to cricket. But yeah, I still remember the, the first time I think I interviewed Usman and it was off the back of the Dubai tests when we made that 100 to to draw to save the game. And not to say he's different because he's always been open and honest and will tell you everything there is. I think he's almost more, I don't know, I don't want to speak to Foot Usman, but maybe more comfortable within himself where he sits because within, and he's spoken about his sort of standing within the Australian team, I think maybe for earlier points that he felt oh, this way or that way or maybe push down a little bit or, or not be able to fully express himself, now he's got a complete confidence to go, no, 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 I'm completely comfortable with expressing myself. And he's a, he's just a joy to interview, a joy to talk to, a joy to throw any question to. He's fantastic. And it must be a relief. I mean, I imagine some of the interviews are, are less uh, rich with possibility. Yeah, it is. And that's also a process in itself because you never interview everyone at the same time, at the same day that invariably you'll find a little bit of a moment that you'll, you'll want to circle back. And so we did three rounds of interviews with the players that you'd do an early one, then you'd find information from that interview session, you'd come back for yourself, oh, we need to find the response to this moment. And you just sort of keep on adding that process. But but equally is the charm, you know, which equally is, I think, also within that episode too, is, is the, the difference between Scott Boland. I think why it sort of balances out so well because you've got Usman who's, you know, quite comfortable in front of the camera versus shy Scott Boland, who's, you know, a little bit more reserved, so it balances out quite well. <laughs> Where does it go? Does this roll on to, into a franchise? Do you get poached like a, a coach to go and work for the IPL and, you know, do the Royal Challengers Bangalore documentary? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm always – I'm interested because there, there is that point and I, I think I probably felt this even after the first series and there was the thought, okay, do we do two or something? Haven't we done cricket? How do we, how do you do it? But you see it with other franchises, other sport franchises that they sort of roll on and roll on. And maybe it assists by you coming back that you, you are invested in these characters. I want to see what happens to, you know, because what we sort of haven't told in a sense is, you know, a player at the twilight of their career. How does that unfold when, when, you know, the body can't do what the mind wants it to? Yeah. You know, those challenges. What happens afterwards? You know, what happens when they're done? I mean, because I think that's one of the little told stories is, is you get players when they've kind of figured out how to exist in retirement a couple of years later, but that immediate period of time is so difficult for so many. Yeah, exactly, which would be – I've always been amazed by that for any athlete, you know, in that sense of, okay, mm. that first part of life is – Cease to exist as it once yeah. was. That it's like, okay, how do you how do you deal with that and move on? But um, I don't know. What is it, certainly interesting about this team is 
there is this element that it could be one of the great teams, you know, and the calendar that's coming is an amazing, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> next six months of cricket. I've, I've read a lot of feedback and it was unfortunate because I think people felt, oh, you didn't, you weren't filming the Border Gavaskar Trophy of, what, 2021, mm-hmm. I think, is that right? And surely because of COVID at that time, it made it impossible to do it. I would have loved to have because it would have been, that would have been just an amazing oh, yeah. film. That would have been absolutely dramatic. And so mm-hmm. oh, you, you, I think people felt like, oh, we opted not to put it in because it might have shown Australia about like, no, no, that would have been, that would have been unbelievable to witness from the inside and then to carry on further. But it wasn't to be, um, you know, we, I think Doc was literally able to get into, um, to Brisbane, you know, a week before, you know, the first test for the Ashes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you forget how close to the wire it was in some ways to even get this one done. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, hopefully there's more. I'd be interested to see whether, you know, there's the other cricketing nations pick it up and what they might do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, we're certainly, you know, if the Australian team's happy to have us, we're certainly on board. Well, England will do it, but they'll do like eight-minute episodes. They'll do it even faster. Yeah, they've just, <laughs> just got to outstrip everybody at this point. Uh, it's out in the world. It's the second series of the test. Uh, Adrian Brown, congratulations. Cheers, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, as we say goodbye for another week. Adrian Brown uh, on the show for the second time. Really enjoyed listening to your conversation with him. Gives a lot when talking about the, I guess the, the thinking behind how they make their programs. And um, yeah, I think it's reasonable to say they had less to work with this time, right? Like it, it is, uh, it is nowhere near as target rich, I suppose, when Justin Langer isn't sort of a major part of it. It was the Justin Langer show last time, but it felt to me like it gave space to Pat Cummins to reinforce what a kind of considered and sensible and kind of strong person that he is. Like the way that he spoke about the Langer stuff, he didn't need to back over that. He literally read his bloody statement out from the press conference after Langer was was given his marching Mm. orders. You know, people like Stephen Smith and David Warner, who couldn't be part of the documentary really last time coming back from their bands, because so much of the the narrative for those who wouldn't be cricket nuts would have been about their omission. So this time, though, they're on camera being interviewed. You get a bit better understanding of what makes them tick. Thought Nathan Lyon was a real star, you know, kind of an unexpected Mm. star turn. He... He's really kind of grown into being the senior pro in that dressing room and that comes through in his public commentary. And then the use of Ashton Agar and Mitchell Marsh. Neither of them played a test match in, in the duration of that, of the you know the, mm. the series they were capturing. But Ashton Agar probably got, I don't know, 15 grabs up because, again, he's a, he's a smart dude with lots to say, a perceptive observer of the game and, and the dressing room. And he, I guess, gets to, on a platform like that, where it's over multiple episodes, you get a real good sense of what, makes him tick as well, even if he's not in the Aussie test team at the moment, or or he might be in a few weeks. Well, he just was. And if some, in some ways, maybe being the observer, so someone like Mitchell Marsh, who's in the squads, he's always there, he's always around. If, If you're able to just sit back and watch and you don't have that anxiety or tension that you might be on the verge of getting picked because you know you're there as a reserve player you know something's only you're only going to get in the side if something major happens then that is a useful perspective yeah. to get you know i thought he's he was very perceptive on the sri lanka situation i was interested in his his comments about not actually wanting to go and play because he, he said it, that it felt wrong to do so you know they got some really interesting perspectives out of Mitch Marsh which might surprise people 
Yeah, well, he was great last time too, wasn't he? He was the um, he was the kind of best newcomer Logie, wasn't he, from the from the mm. first edition of, of the show? And of course, there's the Maxi bit in episode four, which we knew was coming because you know it was pretty clear that they were doing a lot of interviews with Maxi through that Willy Won't He stage at Gaul. In a way, I'm glad they did it through the prism of the first Test match with the Travis Head injury because you know in reality he was actually closer to playing in the second test from a selection perspective because we got we got told didn't we before the second test it was down to whether they play an extra seamer or, or, or Maxwell batting at eight and the the working consensus was that you know given the pitch and the way that it played in the first test they would play the extra spinner and then of course it, it didn't quite go that way and Maxi was clearly devastated but um yeah hearing him talk through that process like you know they got him at good times to sort of get a sense of where his head was at. Mm. And there's a great shot there of Travis Head after the fitness test sitting in the dressing room, uh, you know, taking off his pads or whatever it was and seeing Maxie next to him kind of looking over his shoulder to see what the go was. And, you know, it, it was it was well handled by all involved, I thought. Uh, and mm. again, reinforces why Glenn is such an interesting guy that he's willing to share so much of himself as part of his, you know, he doesn't need to do that, right? But he, but he, he's willing to do that and and trust people with his story. Well, it's an interesting watch if you've got the means to track it down. Then uh, you're advised to do so. Uh, and and one other thing, many people have asked me why does my voice sound digitally altered in that passage in the Sri Lanka episode? Uh, I have I have no I idea. To, I, I listened back to it to, because because I didn't know that it was you. I'm like that sounds like you, but like chipmunk you. What's going yeah. on? And and I had to. I was like, uh, there are very few people, maybe DC who have listened to you, so who have heard more hours of you speaking than yeah. I have. Yeah. And even I was like, hang on, was that, it sounds sort of, I was like the cadence is like you, but the voice isn't like Well, I, I was given a heads up by a couple of colleagues who'd watched the screener before I had that there was a weird bit with my voice. Um, and yeah, I've just been inundated with our listeners mostly going, what the fuck's going on there? I don't know is the answer. I've actually written to the one of the producers just to get a sense of, whether, I mean, I, I just don't know the answer. It makes no sense as to why they would digitally alter my voice for that on face value, but maybe the, the audio was compressed or there was some issue in editing or I suppose we'll find out. When I, when I do, if and when I do, I'll, I'll share that news next week. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a cliffhanger to keep people tuning in <laughs> week after week on The Final Word. Uh, we'll be back on the weekend with Storytime. We'll uh, see what else we can do in terms of other episodes this week, which different things that we're working on in the background. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's our sort of nominal, notional quiet time before booting off to India. But keep an eye on the feed. There may be a few surprises in store. Yeah, it's our quiet time, but we'll probably do a dedicated ep in relation to Afghanistan and a story time ep between now and the next weekly. So, uh, And then we'll pad up and go to India a couple of weeks after that. This has been uh, The Final Word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, thanks to Adrian Brown for being our guest this week. We'll talk to you again soon. I had to go away.